There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. Happy Monday. Hope you guys are having a wonderful start to your week. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of I Could Never Be here on the Popcorn Talk Network. Crazy that we're already mid-August. I know a lot of our younger viewers probably going back to school, whether it's high school, whether it's college. Maybe if you're one of our older listeners, you're sending your kids to school. Sorry, the fun is over if you're one of the kids. But the good news is you certainly get to learn a lot. Education, very important. And that's what we're here to give you on today's show. And on every show, we try to provide just a little bit of education, a little bit of motivation and inspiration for your lives to be able to keep going, keep pushing to be able to reach your dreams. Always share at the beginning a little advice for your daily life. And I was reminded this week in the incredible story of Charles Schultz, or Howard Schultz, sorry, not Charles Schultz, Howard Schultz, who is the founder of Starbucks. Starbucks, certainly the company that you see almost on every street corner in some city, serving up fresh brewed coffee and pastries. And it seems like a household name. Man, you want to go to Starbucks? Oh, I got you a Starbucks gift card. But the company almost didn't exist. Howard Schultz had to go to 242 people to be able to secure funding to be able to start Starbucks. Now, just think about that. How many times have you needed something in your life and gone to more than 10 people, more than five people to be able to say, hey, do you have this? No. Hey, do you have this? No. Hey, do you have this? No. And to keep going until you actually got what you wanted. So for him to be able to go to 100 people, 150, 200, 243 people, the person that he got that finally got him the funding, just incredible. An incredible story of perseverance and certainly, you know, someone that's dedicated in what he does and the results pay off. Someday, you know, we might have him on the show to be able to share his experience. But in the meantime, we have another phenomenal guest this week. He's an actor who first got his start uh, in the mid-70s before transitioning over to movies where he starred opposite of Tom Cruise in Risky Business, then went on to play his most memorable role as Booger in Revenge of the Nerds and certainly several sequels. That was certainly just the beginning as his fan-favorite persona Continued with several other roles, including movies, Ray and Dodgeball, as well as TV shows, New Girl and Supernatural. Please welcome Curtis Armstrong. Thank Thank you you so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. This book is incredible. I was reading it over the past several days to, to get ready to be able to learn about your life. And it's so real. It's so educational. And just the honesty that's in it, too. I mean, you start out of saying, like, this is how what it is like to be an actor, and this is the real story. And it, I think you had one line though, that this is what it's like to be really be an actor, and it causes you to drink or something, and like the, oh. the other hobbies. <laughs> yeah, drinking and other hobbies. Uh, yeah, I don't remember the exact <laughs> context, but it it was something like that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it. You know, I remember back when I was a when I was very young in Detroit. And I already wanted to be an actor mm-hmm. at that point. And I was watching The Tonight Show, one of those, probably t- Tonight Show. They, uh, they had uh, an actor on, I can't remember now who it was, but it was an older actor. And uh, he was saying, you know, well-known, well-respected mm-hmm. actor. And he was saying, uh, he was asked, do you have any advice to give to young actors who are coming up? And he said, don't do it. It's horrible. Wow. It's a lonely existence. It's a miserable existence. And I'm sitting there watching this. And it was Anthony Quinn. 
That oh, was wow. who it was. It yeah. just came to me. It was Anthony Quinn, and he was saying it was awful, terrible job. Uh, you'll be miserable. You'll be lonely. Uh, you know, you'd never get work and blah, blah, blah. And he's going on and on. And I'm sitting there going, that's not advice to give to young <laughs> Yeah, I want to do this. I don't want to hear that it's miserable and lonely and yeah. desperate. Don't tell me not to do it. Tell me how tell to me do it. Tell me why I yes. should be doing why? it, not you know, mm-hmm. not why I shouldn't. I mean, I'm miserable now. <laughs> what do I have to lose is my view. And uh, and I've, that's always been sort of stuck in the back of my mm-hmm. mind because I get, a, I get that question constantly of how do you do it and, you know, what's the procedure and what advice do you have and... Of course, I don't have much in the way of practical advice, um, but you know, it's something that when you're committed and devoted uh, and passionate about something, you do it, and yeah. until until you succeed or until it finally gets the better of you. Yeah, and it's again, acting is one of those things too. Where I, and we talked about this last episode. It was the advice given was. A lot of people think you either really make it big or you're a failed actor. No, acting you can do at various levels. You can always, you can do community theater, you can do stage, you can do movies. There's a lot that could impress you about the all-new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class-leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. And TV and, you know, whether big budget, small budget, it's something you can always do. Right. It's always there, which is great. I want to be able to plug uh, you on social media, on Twitter, at Curtis's Booger. You can follow me at the only MC on Instagram and on Twitter and certainly at the Popcorn Talk. We're live here every single Monday on YouTube to be able to have this show. We certainly have a live chat. You guys have any questions, tune in and be able to comment there. We'll work into the conversation. If you're watching this also on Apple Podcast, we would uh, love to have you guys maybe join us for the YouTube. You can watch live. Otherwise, certainly tell a friend, like, comment, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. What is your definition of an actor? You know, when you're starting out and there's mm. so many different levels and what they do, what, what is your definition? If someone said, what is an actor? Well, I mean, I don't, uh, I don't think there's anything, you know, sort of metaphysical about it. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, an actor is someone who acts for a living, ideally. Mm-hmm. Um, as you point out, there are certainly ways of, of uh, acting that don't require an entire lifetime of, of devotion to a craft. Um, but for those of us for whom it is a life, mm-hmm. it's, that's what we do. I, I don't think... One of the things, I mean, you know, my father was an auto executive. You know, I, I, it's it's not a question that he would have been asked. Mm-hmm. You know, what what is an auto executive? Yeah. You know, it's an executive in the auto business. You know, my mm-hmm. grandfather was a banker. Mm-hmm. What's a banker? Yeah. Actors are pretty much the same. Okay. How long were you thinking about writing this book before you had enough people say, so how did you do it? Not that long, actually. I and I was mentioning uh, to you earlier that you know I've kept all of this material, all of these journals and mm-hmm. ephemera and letters and all of this kind of stuff that I've kept going back to the early seventies, and never with the intention of writing a book. 
It was just because I'm a pack rat and I can't get rid of anything. <laughs> so, uh, but when it came to this, I think it came about because I had started, I was doing a show called uh, King of the Nerds, yep. the, the, uh, the uh, comedy reality show mm-hmm. that Robert Carradine mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. d- uh, developed. But 2013 to 2015. Yeah. Yep. And uh, we did, uh, in order to do that with TBS, we had to have a social media presence. And neither of us had one at that point. And so I started a Twitter account and a fan page. Mm -hmm. And the fan page, I didn't really know what to do with. Um, So I started writing these essays for the fan page, which were reflective Mm -hmm. of my career, uh, since that was why people were there. Mm -hmm. And I would just do that. And uh, they were long, sort of literary things which weren't mm-hmm. really appropriate for a fan page but <laughs> but it was all I knew how to do yeah. and it was an outlet it was an outlet and it was something to do mm-hmm. and so I it basically was a blog it turned into a blog and uh over time my I, I my my uh, uh publicist Laura Ackerman said she was reading them and saying you should get serious about it and write yeah. a book and You're a third of the way there with everything that happened. Pretty much. There, I mean, there written. was all this stuff. Yeah. And um, she got in touch with, with an agent in New York, and he was interested, and it just went from there. But, but it was basically start to finish about four years. Hmm. Was writing this book and actually you know, going through everything that you had, what experience was that? I mean, was that just bringing up memories for you of things that you had forgotten of? of oh, times yeah. And were like, wow, yeah, that's right, this happened. Oh, it, there was a lot of that. I mean, it was uh, it was me, you know, going into the past and finding all of these, you know, stories and, and things in, that I had kept. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was also, once I got to the, to the movie part of it, um, I was also getting in touch with people I knew from those movies, mm-hmm. from Risky Business, mm-hmm. Paul Brickman, the director and writer, uh, a bunch of the actors in Revenge of the Nerds I'm still close mm-hmm. with, you know, Savage Steve Holland, a bunch of people yeah. uh, who I'd worked with, especially in the 80s. And I just sat down with them and tape recorded their recollections. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, it goes from being a book in the early you know the first third of it, which is my youth and childhood and mm-hmm. that sort of thing, going into nineteen eighty two three for risky business when I start bringing other voices into it because mm-hmm. I thought that would be helpful interestingly it was it was especially with revenge of the nerds it was almost it turned out to be almost impossible because I was I was uh, interviewing all of these actors, and everybody seemed to have different recollections of the same event, which is an interesting lesson. Uh, you know, there would be there was one I remember. There was a dinner that I talk about in the book that we had in Tucson when we were shooting Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. and something happened at the dinner which I remembered quite vividly, but then. I talked to two other actors, three other actors who were also at the dinner, and they remembered it differently. So, were you as confident in your uh, well, memory I, after talking with yeah. them? Or what? Well, what I had to do was, in the case of nerds especially, 
what I had to do was uh, get two recollections that were the same Got before it. I would yeah. put it out there. Now, all the rest of the stuff, which is my own memory mm-hmm. or stuff I'd written down, I just went with that. You know, it's my memoir, so... How different were the stories from other people? In one case, pretty dramatic difference. <laughs> pretty dramatic difference. Were you at this dinner? Was this a different one? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really was one of those things. And realizing that there was a whole time flux thing that made one version impossible. Mm-hmm. So I, it was just, it was realizing that everyone, you know, an event like Revenge of the Nerds, which was significant for mm-hmm. all of us, mm-hmm. um, the you know that eight weeks or nine weeks whatever it was in Tucson Arizona stays with us in our own way, and yeah. we carry it with us. And some people carried it one way, and some people carried it another way. You said you're fairly close with them. How how close is that? Do you guys Pretty talk at, talk fairly recently? Commonly? Yeah, all, well, in fact, I'm going to be seeing most of them next in the next three weeks because uh, we're doing a reunion at a convention at Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Colorado Springs Comic Con. Nice. And we did one last year also. uh, And, you know, Bobby and I, of course, were together for years on Mm -hmm. that other show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brian and Larry B and Andrew and Tim, these are all people, Julie, uh, Don Gibb, all of these people are people that I've either worked with on some project or we just get together for dinner once in a while. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of them live out in this area. Yeah. Yeah, it makes it easy. Most of them do. But, I, you know, we, we it was really an amazing experience, and it's made more intense by the fact that, that the movie meant so much to people. Mm-hmm. So that whereas I've done movies which came and went and no one yeah. paid any attention, this is so relevant and it it continues it to mean things generations. to people. Generation, yeah, into the second generation now, um, that we're all continually brought back together by it one way or another. Has there ever been talk, and I know now it seems the thing is where you take something and you bring it back, and I think of mm. um, like Full House and Fuller House, mm. and I think they're talking about maybe possibly doing like a Sandlot uh, again, bringing it back, and uh, Karate Kids with Cobra Kai with their kids. Has that ever been a discussion with the Revenge of the Nerds doing another one with the kids or bringing it back for this generation? Well, we sort of did that. Um, with Nerds 3. Nerds 3 was really a uh, pilot, primarily, um, which was supposedly going to be a young generation. Yeah. It was called Revenge of the Nerds 3, The Next Generation. Yeah. That was the point mm-hmm. of it. Um, but it was supposed to be, you know, the younger people and then the nerds come in to help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was it was what it was. Mm-hmm. It, was it was a nice, you know... TV pilot, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and then some of those nerds came with us into the next the movie, the fourth one. Um, but I, you know, I, I there's talk about it every once in a while, but no one seems to have been able to get a story that works, mm-hmm. uh, and so 
you know, it just remains talk at this point. Yeah. No, I know. It, and it's hard to get a project into development and be able to get everyone on board and be able to get all the writing and, and approval from, you know, all the studios and stuff like that. So it's easy to say, hey, yeah, this is great. And even if you have everyone on board, but I know there's certainly a lot of steps to make that happen. Yeah. In your book, you had a you had a very diverse upbringing. And you talk about you grew up in Detroit right. and then you, you were, you know, raised a little bit in Switzerland. How much did that impact your life and your career and being able to kind of think outside the box of being in these different areas and experiencing different things? Well, I think it affected me more as a, as a person than it did as an actor. I don't think it had a dramatic effect on me as an actor, except from the standpoint that being in Detroit meant that I had access after years Mm -hmm. uh, into the early 70s where I had access to an acting academy, Mm -hmm. a really good one, Mm -hmm. um, which was at Oakland University, and then subsequently started in regional theater there. So geographically, it was handy because there was that and when I was growing up I would be taken to see plays you know uh, uh, the Hillbury and and uh, other in Meadowbrook other places and so that was a benefit mm-hmm. um, as a person I went over to Switzerland when I was nine mm-hmm. and I was there for three and a half years um, while we were there we traveled extensively and that meant I got to see the world. Mm-hmm. It went, meant that I got to see wonderful places, uh, and it meant that I w- saw some pretty horrible stuff, too, mm-hmm. and uh, extreme poverty mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, which opened my head to what is different than suburban Detroit mm-hmm. and those of us who were fortunate enough to be brought up in mm-hmm. the... In, in that environment. So it, it did affect me that way. It gave me a kind of empathy that I might not have had had I stayed in Detroit. Um, and then on returning to Detroit was the, the uh, in, 1960, in 1968 was the, uh, 67 was the riot. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. All, these, all of those kinds of things happened uh, to bring new sort of illumination to the world around me Mm -hmm. um so it was very helpful from that standpoint but it didn't affect me really as an actor at all a lot of people look at acting now to be able to break in and they they say oh man you have to be able to write you have to be able to create and you can't just be a pretty face who can read lines it seems though that that was really what you did way back you know when you were starting out of being able to create and even you know the story of you gathering your neighborhood kids to to recreate the music man the music man which unfortunately didn't happen you know not exactly great story (laughs) but has that always been the case do you think for actors or is that something that you specifically were like I know I need to do this this is always something that I've enjoyed no because I didn't I, I don't think I ever wanted to be an actor I don't think I had a sense of what it was to be an actor mm-hmm. all I knew was I was obsessed with the music man the movie I found obs- I, I, and I think it was it was it was a confidence thing hmm. because I was watching Robert Preston be, you know, the greatest con man ever and, and you know, fooling a whole town and in, in a way which is fairly immoral, but for me was brilliant because I wanted to be that confident, yeah. you know. 
uh, I wanted Mary and the Librarian to fall in love with me, and and so I think that that was that was what was motivating it. I don't remember ever at that point in my life saying oh, I want to be an actor when I grow up. Uh, I loved thing. I loved movies. I loved watching old horror films and science fiction films, mm-hmm. like the Universal Pictures and all those. I I was I was really driven. But never with the idea of, I want to play those parts, just I loved them. It wasn't until after I came back and I was in middle school that I started to get interested in the idea of performing. And uh, I, I, you know, the rest of the time, I mean, before then, the only thing I wanted to do was be a journalist. Mm-hmm. So, And at that point, you just wanted to do stage acting. Yeah, when well, that was all back. I, in a way, that was what I best knew. Uh, when I came back from Switzerland, uh, significantly, I saw a bunch of I saw plays all the time. But there was one in particular, which was Cyrano de Bergerac, that was done at the Hillbury Theater back, back in the '60s. Mm-hmm. This was, uh, or maybe '70, and uh, and John Sterling Arnold was the actor uh, who played uh, played Cyrano in that. And that production changed my life. I saw it three times because, again, it was projecting myself into a character that, you know, the the famous scene in Cyrano de Bergerac is when Cyrano is in a tavern and uh, he's got the huge nose and a bunch of foppish guys mock him by saying something like, wow, it's a huge nose. And Cyrano then goes into a two-page monologue explaining how he would mock somebody with a huge nose. And it would be a lot funnier and more clever than what they said. And this, in retrospect, I realize was me. You know, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was brilliantly theatrical and all that, but I think what I also didn't realize was, as a nerd myself, as someone who was picked on and put down, mm-hmm. uh, uh, beat up occasionally by the greasers in my school, um, I was looking for a way to make myself win. Yeah. And Cyrano was an example of that. Well, it's like, and even in the Music Man, the Con Man, you're you're conning the bullies, you're conning the people to be able to get ahead and be able well, to in outwit, that case, outwit and outsmart. Yeah, I mean, he's not actually conning bullies, but he's he's yeah, conning people. You're outsmarting. He's people. performing. Mm-hmm. His life is a performance that winds up benefiting him to the to the detriment of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just liked that idea, so uh, that production changed my life. I had a, a I had two very significant teachers in middle school and and uh, high school who had been pr- actors themselves, actual performing uh, mm-hmm. professional actors, and they were very in, in, encouraging. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where it all started, really, with was was there. And uh, and then when I went to the academy, the academy was so perform so stage oriented mm-hmm. there was no we didn't have you know film classes we it was all stage and it was classical and that's what i wanted to do and when it when i left the academy we founded a theater company in ann arbor and we did stage work and when i moved to new york 
I did stage work, and I did regional theaters and tours and summer theaters and dinner theaters, and that was what that was as far as my goals went. For someone who like me who's not an actor, is starting out in stage versus starting out nowadays for people who start out wanting to do TV or movies and going down that path. Is that strictness of stage? Is that a is that a good foundation to have to be able to learn acting at its core before? You know, transitioning over into TV and movies? I think so. But, uh, you know, honestly, everything has changed mm-hmm. so dramatically and the business has changed mm-hmm. so dramatically that I don't know whether people even do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know if people start off in the theater, get their equity card, and then transition into films because mm-hmm. there are so many other ways of doing it. And so many the, kid actors now who are starting out acting at that's 15, true 16, too. 17. That's true, too. But I, I think that that's the, 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 the difference in how you make that, how you, you, you make that climb. Um, it's just very different than it was then. It did make sense then. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I never felt that being on stage was a stop-off on my way to doing yeah, film yep. or television. Mm-hmm. That was something that happened almost in spite of me. Mm-hmm. You talked about uh, bullying. Bullying now obviously can mean a lot of different things. What did that, uh, it, what was that experience like? And what was bullying when you were in school? Um, it, was, it was pretty much the classic thing that you would expect. I was beaten up by kids. I was mocked. I was humiliated. Um, I was a particular target because I had come from Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just that I was bookish, although that, yep. you know, um, was an issue. But it was also the fact that I had been in Switzerland and no one could quite understand that. They, like, I, the kids in my school tended to think, they would always say that I was from Sweden because in those days, they didn't know what Switzerland was, but they knew... SWSW, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> but it also they knew Sweden from the porn movies. Ah. Because, like, I Am Curious, Yellow, and mm-hmm. Black, and those those things were popular at the time. So that, that was somehow a connection. And uh, I was short, and I was young-looking, and I was not sports-oriented. There were... I had a lot of things going against me. So, you know, at one point, my mother sent me to get judo lessons, for self-defense, it never worked. But but you know that it was one of those one of those kinds of things. What allowed you to channel that as motivation? Like you were saying with with acting and with the plays of man, I want to be able to not change who I am, but be able to be that person who outsmarts them and outwits them. Um, it it ultimately wasn't that. It was actually just. Uh, I got involved in the National Forensic Society, mm. which was, you know, you do speaking. speaking and speeches, but you can do not just, you know, declamatory things, but you can also do comedic, you know, pieces and three or four minutes, whatever they mm. are. And having been inspired by this performance of Cyrano, I picked the tavern scene from Cyrano de Bergerac. And I wound up going to the regional theater, the regional finals in Michigan um, with that. And I think that it wasn't a question of outwitting people or conning people. It was a question of having found something that I could do which no one else in my circle could do. 
I'd finally found my niche and it was performing. At that point, it was just standing up at a podium and doing the Cyrano, you mm-hmm. know. And then I did a couple of others. I did a thing from Moby Dick. <laughs> I, yeah, some weird choices. Um, but uh, I did them. And then suddenly I had something that people noticed. Hmm. And I started doing plays in school. And people noticed it. And I got laughs and that kind of thing. So, you know, that was what it was. It was finding something that I could do well Did and you ever that go, fed me. You ever go back to judo lessons? No, no, <laughs> no. When you graduated uh, from school, I know you and uh, some friends formed a company right. to be able to act. Did everyone else kind of have that same mindset of wanting to... Uh, advance their acting career and just having that same attitude of this is how we can do it, all joining forces, all working together. Was everyone on that same Not everyone, but drive a, level? It was a surprising number of people. I mean, of our graduating class, which is, I think, 21 people. Started out as 30, right? I think. You yeah, said, well, yeah, the year before, yeah. 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 And then gradually people either mm-hmm. dropped out or mm-hmm. were not asked back, whatever it was. But with our group, uh, we wound up at 21. And Half of those wound up being part-time or full-time members of this company that lasted – it lasted for years, yeah. actually. It, it started in Ann Arbor as roadside attractions. It was sort of an itinerant group. Then it mo- I moved to New York, and they moved to downtown Detroit. It became the Attic Theater down there. And was that a precedent from previous years of doing no, something similar? Absolutely what not. What made that? I think it was. Then? I think it was because our training was so specialized. We were trained in all sorts of sort of fairly exotic mask work: Commedia dell'arte, neutral mask, uh, Swiss ball mask. We were, uh, which is really obscure. Um, we, you know, were trained in classics and so on. So, what we had been doing living and breathing all of that time had been something that we knew we would never get to do elsewhere and our teachers at the academy were very supportive and agreed to direct productions for mm-hmm. us on their own dime wow so we did productions i did a production of of pinter's the caretaker or we did goldoni's servant of two masters we did these obscure plays in Ann Arbor um, that would be directed by the people who been, had been teaching us for two years. So everyone wound up benefiting from that. You said on their own dime. Did they fully finance that? Or they what? didn't finance anything. They just said, like with the, the, with the uh, caretaker, it was, you know, we would come down, the three actors in that play would drive down to the academy three days a week, and rehearse for four or five hours mm-hmm. with Alex Gray, who is our acting teacher. And then we would go back and redo it for another couple of days on our own. Then we would go back mm-hmm. again. So, But what he would do is at the end of a full day of teaching, he would go home, eat dinner, then come back to the academy and direct us. And all you guys are working other jobs at this point. Yeah. Too, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, working jobs just for rent. What kind of jobs? Well, in my case, it was mainly janitorial. Um, I, di- I did a few different kinds of things. I worked in a women's dress store at one point, and uh, that was that was the closest I came to an actual job that 
paid regularly. But aside from that, it was mainly, you know. Was it hard there to get to get jobs? I know today's actors, everyone's, oh, if you want to have a job that has a flexible schedule, Uber. Was it hard at that point to buy, find a flexible schedule? It was like, all right, I need to be able to have this time to yeah, do Yeah, I this. don't even remember how I got. I think I just went from shop to shop saying, do you need work? You wow. need workers. Um, and then there was a period of time where I would go down – uh, you know, like the guys that you see outside of of uh, uh, Pier One, or you know, one or you know, one of those places, day laborers. Basically, mm-hmm. I was one of those for a while. So I would go down to this place by the railroad tracks, and a bunch of us would just sit around, shuffling our feet, waiting for somebody to show up in a pickup truck and take us to do some job. And that <laughs> was red. You never know what you're going to get. No, no, no idea. What? Was the voice inside that said, all right, it's time to move to New York? Uh, that was after uh, I had done – I had already done my first professional job. But I'd gone back to Ann Arbor and I was still working on mm-hmm. the – on the on with our company. And uh, it was always going to happen. It mm-hmm. was just a question of when. And uh, what I did was I took a calendar – which had all 12 months on it and literally closed my eyes and stabbed my finger down on a date, which was August 11th, how, 1975. How forward from where you were? Because I know you said that I was, a, It was spring, so it was a few months ahead. I mean, if obviously, if I'd hit... February, I would have been in trouble, <laughs> but but I was I, I I was shooting for the bottom part of the calendar, so it would be like this uh, is yeah. You land a couple of months out, and you're like yeah, okay, that's doable. Yeah, so I finished up with you know my responsibilities with the with the company, yep. and I quit my job at the women's uh, dress shop, and uh, off I went. One of the biggest stories that I love uh, in this book is when you talk about turning down the role for the New Jersey theater to be able to oh, right. accept the role in risky business. And right. that was, I think, a turning point in here because the whole time, the beginning of the book, you talked about, oh, I wanted to be a stage actor. I want to be a stage actor. I never even thought about doing TV or movies. I always wanted to do stage, and this is the opportunity. And then you take the job as a movie, Versus the stage thing, which seemed at the time a very great job. Yeah. Why? Uh, I guess it was because um, I don't know. <laughs> I because I'd already worked at New Jersey Shakespeare, so mm-hmm. it was not like it was a theater I hadn't worked at before. It was a summer job. It was a rep job, as I remember. Um, it was you know, like Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth. I mean, it mm-hmm. was like a. A nice chunk of stuff. Yeah. Uh, it was exactly con- I think it was in consistent the... too, right? I'm sorry, it was consistent too. I think. Well, yeah, I like... mean, because in New York, you know, it's once you get to in those days, especially for theater, you know, once you get into the summer, you're sunk, mm-hmm. you know, until autumn comes around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seemed it was an offer. You know, it was they were just waiting for me to say yes, and there was something about risky business which. And it was maybe the script, maybe it was the part, maybe it was the fact that I'd been auditioning for it for months mm-hmm. and, you know, was now beginning to feel like this belongs to me yeah. in a way. <clears throat> so uh, 
but it was a real gamble because if I turn down New Jersey Shakespeare and then it winds up that I don't get the movie, then I have nothing. Yeah. So it was a complete gamble. Did you expect at that time that Risky Business would be the start of a long TV and movie career? I thought it was a one-job deal. One job. And that would be... Uh, I would I would have an experience, which is why I kept a journal mm-hmm. on Risky Business. And it was a detailed journal because I wanted to remember what making a movie was like. I didn't I, – I, I, that was my way of thinking was this happens one time. I'm going to remember it. And that's why I kept the journal. How many people have stories like that where they're like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just going to dip my toe in. Right. And it's just going to be this one thing. And then the next thing you know, 30 years later, yeah. you're still doing projects. Yeah. And you talk about the journal. That is, honestly, in Revenge of the Nerd, your book, that is one of the biggest things that is so enjoyable to read. Of Like, this day we've shot this and this, and I'm, yeah. I'm waiting with Tom. And I, you had a story about uh, uh, certainly the party crazy scene in Risky Business where you dressed up as a woman you're trying to get in. And the behind-the-scenes story there yeah. it was just – it's incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it was all written very specifically because I did want to – I, I wanted to remember everything. So what was it about that project that made you want to do the next one and the next one? It wasn't about that project. It was just that I wound up making, for me, a lot of money. and But the movie was delayed for over a year before it was released while they reshot the ending. So uh, I didn't have any idea whether it was going to go anywhere. And in the meantime, I'd had this, you know, I... Because I'd done a movie, they were now sending me out for movies, mm-hmm. more than theater stuff. So I started auditioning more and more for movies. I turned down some other movies uh, during the course of that because it still wasn't what I wanted to do. But in the meantime, I was running out of money. And then Revenge of the Nerds came along, and I could see that this was going to be another thing where you know I could go for the summer and make some good money and yeah. then go back to the theater <laughs> and that was what it was for the rest of the decade was that okay I'll do this one and then I'll go back to the theater and I never left the theater I kept doing plays mm-hmm. but the movies became more and more uh, significant and then at the end of the decade well 87 was when I got Moonlighting and yeah. at that point it became impossible to do plays anymore because that was a full time did you know at the time that revenge of the nerds would be what it is or what did you think it was just a you just took it because it was a job oh no no no. we didn't none of us wanted to do it we only did it for the money i mean and that's everyone i mean the actors the director i I talked to everybody i mean literally the quote on the back of the book is booger absolutely not they can't (laughs) offer me enough money to embarrass myself this way i'm a classically trained actor i'm not gonna pick my nose in front of millions of people that's right and then i wound up doing that for the next 10 years <laughs> in four movies. Um, so, yeah, that was the... that was uh, No one wanted to do it. it. The script was not great, and and we all felt embarrassed even by the title of it. You know, uh, is just... It seemed like a terrible title. And so we go to, to Tucson, Arizona, and we're going, oh, okay. But then we started working on it, and we worked with the writers, and we worked with the director, and the next thing we knew, we had something that we really liked. What did that 10 years teach you about the unpredictability of the business? Uh, well, because those were not the only things I did. 
that was the thing is that you know in that that first one was 84 the second one was in 87 i was already on moonlighting mm-hmm. at that point mm-hmm. so i had a full plate Mm-hmm. And then Moonlighting ended in 89. The third one was in 92, two. And then the next one was the following year, so 90, something mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, these, but these were happening along with other stuff. Mm-hmm. I wasn't just doing that. Yeah. And it was also a period where I was writing screenplays and selling screenplays mm-hmm. with a partner. And so that I now had basically two jobs, which was the acting side and the writing side. And, and that was, that was a, a pretty rich period. And three and four, nerds, three and four, um, were things that I mainly did, and I think most of us mainly did, because we liked hanging out. Mm-hmm. We liked being with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fun working on movies. We weren't expecting you know genius yeah we were just working on movies and laughing your character you know that that again that very unique persona that person that (laughs) people lovable and people connect with a lot of people in the industry you know they, they can get typecast yeah and i think that was you for a certain extent do you embrace that? What did you fight that a little bit? Try or how does that? I don't think I, this is my own view about typecasting. A, I don't think it's a bad thing because, in general, I think an actor would rather be typecast than not work. B, I didn't feel ever typecast as Booger. I did four jobs as that character, mm-hmm. so it might feel that way. But for me. You know, I was doing all sorts of different stuff. I wasn't, I mean, unfortunately, some, especially the stage stuff, obviously, but even some of the the pilots that I was doing or low-budget films or TV shows that I was appearing on, all of that stuff that was happening isn't as well-remembered as Booger. Mm -hmm. So as far as, you know, audiences are concerned, that may be... I mean, I have people come up to me constantly and say... Booger from Revenge of the Nerds, <laughs> right? And I say, yeah, that's right. What happened? Did you do anything after that? And I, it's like, that was 1984. Yeah, yeah. And as far as, or 87, if they know the second one. You're like, nope, been living under no, a rock ever that's since. Right. Ever since then, I've just <laughs> been, yeah. What, you know, but that's the way it is. I mean, that's what yeah. people remember, and that's fine. I, I'm happy for them that that's what they remember. But the way I look at my career and the way other people do is very different. Do you think? So that, I don't. I don't. The, no, the, to yeah, answer yeah. the question, I don't feel like I. I was stuck. The world of being an actor, you know, you, it's a world I think where you're constantly you can be comparing yourself to your peers and like, oh, look what role they got, and look what role I got, and look at this. Is that something you think a lot of actors struggle with, of uh, that constant comparison? And how much is that a good thing of saying, like, oh, I want to use this person to motivate me and what they're achieving and what I can achieve versus staying in your own lane knowing that the roles that you're going to get are the roles that you're going to get, and sometimes it's about just pleasing the right person on a production? Uh, well, I don't think that I have ever been overly like jealous of actors you know i don't often look at an actor's performance and say i should have played that you know 
or, or you know, re- read for something that I didn't get and some other guy got. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of you, – you learn that fairly early on. You're just not going to get every part. And one of the things that one of our acting teachers told us at the academy, never forgot it. She said, you all think that – you know, you guys think that you're going to play Lear, you know, when you get out of here. Mm-hmm. You're not going to play Lear. There are things that you're going to do that you're right for and things that you're not right for. And those are the, you know, the sooner you get accustomed to to that realization, the Mm -hmm. better off you'll be. Otherwise, all you do is torment yourself. So that while everybody has heroes, everybody has actors that they look up to and admire. I had them. Everybody has them. Um, I can't say that they were, I've ever been bothered by roles that I didn't get. I really genuinely don't feel that way. Do you think other actors feel that way? Is that maybe, but that's their problem. I yeah. mean, I I don't I uh, jealousy, I mean that idea is pretty negative and you wind up having to live with that. And if you if you live with that kind of negativity in what is a volatile business anyway, uh that's just putting yourself through a lot of torment you don't need. Yeah. It, believe me, it's yeah. a miserable enough job as it is. <laughs> but if you're putting on top of it the fact that, oh, I hate that guy. He gets everything mm-hmm. that I, you know. It. Plus, I mean, I've been very lucky in that I work fairly constantly. Mm-hmm. So if I don't get a job, another one comes along. And then yeah. that, uh, okay, that's what I do. Well, I think that attitude is very important to have, just being in the moment and being like, this is, I can, there are certain things you can't control and certain things you can't. And when right. you focus on things you can't control, you're going to drive yourself miserable because you can't exactly. control. I mean, you're, just, you're constantly thinking about that. Exactly. And like so, you said, I mean, your, your project, people know you for Adventures and Nerds, but there's so many other projects that you've done, you know, that like Smoking Aces. Again, we talked about Ray. We talked about the yeah. other movies and the other TV shows and New Girl. And it's like... There has been constant work. It has been consistent. Not constant, but in, uh, constant enough. Yeah. I mean, continual enough that it, you know, and some of it is terrible. I mean, you know, by the way, anybody who's been in the business as long as I have does terrible stuff. I mean, it's not just bad projects, but terrible acting jobs. I There's some stuff that I can't even look at. It's so awful. Um, so, but... <laughs> That's part of what you do, and that's part of the process. Outside of Revenge of the Nerds, I won't go to the the worst things that you've worked on. What would you say were the, the best things, the most enjoyable, the most proud of things that you've worked on? Um, I, I'll say aside from stage, which no mm-hmm. one would remember, um, uh, certainly Moonlighting, uh, certainly Ray, uh, certainly Aquila and the Bee, although Aquila and the Bee... I love the movie, and I don't like my performance, but I love the movie a lot. Um, an independent movie uh, called uh, Route Thirty. Nobody knows it. It's one of my. It's it is maybe my favorite film of something that I've done. Revenge of the Nerds. My performance in Revenge of the Nerds is a good performance. It has nothing to do with me. It's only <laughs> it has it has everything to do with that character. Um, Supernatural, the character of Metatron and Supernatural. That gift, that was a gift. Fifteen episodes, and every one of them was mm-hmm. great. Um, so 
you know, uh, lots of lo- lots of things. I mean, things pop up and I enjoy them. Some of them are popular. Some of them get nominated. Animated, Dan versus. Yeah. You know, I mean. I was going to say, you had a lot of nominations American for your Dad. voiceover work lately. Yeah, yeah, American Dad. So that's been 14 years. So, oh, wow. you know, a lot, of, a lot of things that I like and enjoy and feel good about. When you finish a project, do you rewatch it and try to pick things that you like and don't like to be able to improve upon and be able to say, oh, maybe I'll try this more in this next one? Or No. Because no? it never it never is the same way twice, really. Too, there are too many sort of imponderables. You don't know, you know, from one job to the next, what, you know, who the... I'll give you an example. I'm working mm-hmm. on a show right now uh, uh, called Now We Hear. And it's uh, Adam Pally and Sam Richardson. Okay. And we've been shooting it this summer in Atlanta. Half-hour film. And this show is I think wonderful and but it's working a way that I have never worked before after all these years because all of these people are improv based all of them and most of them are from Upright Citizens Brigade themselves just as a group Mm -hmm. so they have a way of working a lot of improvisation scenes that never play the same way twice none of this is is Anything I'm accustomed to. You know, it required working new muscles, which I had never worked before. Because I'm not a a sketch guy. I'm not an improv guy. So I'm doing this at the same time that I'm having to learn a new way of working. Mm -hmm. And the first episode, I thought I was just terrible because (laughs) I wasn't in sync with these people. And then by the end of that and the beginning of the second one, I began to realize how it worked. Do you like that challenge? Yeah. It keeps things, it keeps you from being, you know, self-satisfied when, you know, you you think, ah, another job. Yeah. And you come in and they start throwing that kind of stuff at you. You know, that's, that was fun. Is there a role you haven't played yet that you're like, man, I'd love to be able to do X or Y? You know, uh, again, some stage ones maybe. (laughs) Um, not Professor Harold Hill from <laughs> <laughs> Music Man, um, but um, you know maybe I mean the 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 absurd fantasy would be Richard the Third. Mm-hmm. That's the absurd fantasy, but actually it would be more like Bottom. <laughs> given me, <laughs> do you when you look at your career? I mean, forty years of movies, TV show, stage. Do you accredit that 40 years and the consistency of working for 40 years as an actor? Do you accredit that to anything? I mean, if you look back and, oh, it was my drive. Oh, it was my motivation. Oh, it was X. I loved it. Uh, I loved it from the moment I discovered it. But I'm not sure my love of it would have been sufficient to stay with it for 40 years if there hadn't been some kind of indication that it was where I was supposed to be. Hmm. So when I graduated from the Academy, it was 1975, spring of 1975. I gave myself, at that time, I made a pact with myself, and I said, I'm giving you 10 years, (laughs) 10 years, 
So I say, in 10 years, if I don't have some indication that this is where I should be, then I'm going to give it up. (laughs) True. So 10 years, that puts you to 85. By 85, I was doing my fourth film. But in, you know, before that, seven years of of stage work. So, you know, I mean, I think in retrospect, I would have maybe said three years, you know, (laughs) four, you know, because if I had gone four years with nothing, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I would have been like Howard Schultz and just kept going. Uh, You know, I would have just eventually gone, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, go into some other journalism. Yeah. Go, go into something that pays even less. (laughs) That's a good idea. And, and probably what I would have done. Do you advise people to do the, the timeline? Because I hear a lot of people when they move to L.A., oh, I'm going to move to L.A., I'm going to give it two... I said it! I said it! Yeah. I'm going to move to L.A., I'm going to give it two years. Nothing happens in two years. Yeah. I think it, you can almost convince yourself, though, there's something that'll happen that time. Well, this... I think you have... I wouldn't say that it's necessary, but the reason that I did it, I think, was uh, it was partially just to make you feel like you're doing something with a plan. Yeah. Even though that it's that yeah. isn't a plan, no. it's just it's just saying okay by that time. Well, you know, if you get to you know the the story you were telling, if you get to you know three and a half years and you get a job, does that mean that that's an one. indication? I got one. And now you give yourself another five years, <laughs> or you know what? You know, it it's I think it's up to the people. It's up to individuals, however yeah. they want to do it. One of my favorite questions I love acting or I love asking. <laughs> Uh, is in 30, 40 years, when someone looks back on your life and career, what are three things that you want them to take from it? Um, he was blank. Funny. Um, <laughs> a good actor. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure. You know, it's not like I'm. You know, I I have unfortunately not done. I have not done more with my life than what I do. I mean, I have. You know, in my private life, mm-hmm, there are mm-hmm. there are things that I have done that I'm proud of. That you know, efforts to and act change and give back and that kind of thing. But I have not been somebody whose life work will have changed anyone. Mm-hmm. What it might do is make people happy for an hour and a half. And if you can do that, then you're doing okay. I think we all need that sometimes, though. Yeah. We need that hour and a half, an hour and a half escape of man everything's going on in the world let me just flip something on yeah exactly and be able to take to take a time exactly out. and that's yeah. an important role I, I don't want you to discredit yourself from that i think it's no no very I, it's role. not i'm not i'm honestly okay, not. okay but good yeah what is success to you definition of success oh boy that's another one of those questions you know you want it you kind of want a uh you want some kind of you know grand statement uh you know, my success is going into my definition of success for me mm-hmm. yep. was going into a perilous and difficult uh, business um, 
and succeeding in it beyond my initial expectations Mm -hmm. and doing so without corrupting anyone (laughs) or hurting anyone, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Um, Just doing it and, you know, giving some pleasure to people. You know, I've made a living. Uh, I'm happily married. I have a daughter who just got her master's from Oxford. I'm enormously proud of her. Um, What else can you ask for, really? You know, I you live a happy life. I I I suppose there are people who are enormously competitive and ambitious who want to reach the top of the the toppermost of the poppermost, as the Beatles would say. Um, I was never that person. I just wanted to act. Uh, We appreciate the people who tuned in the live chat. Uh, I'm going to give you a shout out, Neil. Says that he's from England. He said, growing up in the 80s, I vaguely remember Neil Watson and Nerds. Neil Hutchinson. Neil Hutchinson. But he says, one of my fondest memories is sitting down and watching you in Moonlighting. Oh, that's, you know what? Moonlighting, always more popular in England than it was here. It was Hmm. all, when I went over to England, it was always in the early, like, 90s. I was always surprised. Hmm. Moonlighting was hugely popular there. And all of the other stuff, nerds, they didn't, didn't know it at all. Well, certainly... That's uh, really nice. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing about nerds is, and I hear this a lot from people who say, say, will write me and they will say, or meet me at a convention, and they'll say, my dad just passed away and one of my f- fondest memories was sitting watching Revenge of the Nerds with him because he would laugh and laugh and laugh. And, wow. you know, the, those kinds of things are really nice to hear. Well, we've covered a lot uh, in this interview. There's a lot more... In Revenge of the Nerd, and then you have another book out. Uh, yes, which and is... that's a book actually about the English uh, writer P.G. Woodhouse. It's called A Plum Assignment, mm-hmm. Discourses on P.G. Woodhouse and His World. It's a nonfiction book with a lot of um, memoir attached to it. Uh, that I wrote with Elliot Milstein. And then when will the... We were talking before the show about uh, at Oakland, you've sent a lot of stuff back. Yes, they asked... Uh, Oakland University, their Kresge Library has asked for my... Would I donate my papers mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. journals and letters and all of that relating to my career? Do you know when that would be... I don't. Uh, I mean, okay. I've, I'm... Literally today, I was wow. packing boxes. Wow. Um, and so I don't know when it will be accessible. It won't be this year. Yeah. It, it may not be next year. But right now, it's been an interesting process to go through all of this ephemera from a life, you know, from 40 years of acting and say, oh, my God, I'd forgotten <laughs> that. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah, it's a little trip down memory lane. And yeah. I appreciate you guys taking the trip with us today on I Could Never Be. Certainly, if you want to follow Curtis after the show, Curtis is Booger on Twitter, at the only MC on Twitter for me, and at the Popcorn Talk. We're so thankful to be here. Guys, we're here every Monday sharing these stories of people who you see and you're like, man, this person achieved success. How did they get there? We uncover the stories for you. So certainly here on YouTube every single Monday live. You can listen also on Apple Podcasts. No matter where you're listening, drop a like, subscribe, tell a friend. We give this content to you for free. We just want to make your life better. Just share it. Just go out in the world and be able to be a better person, be able to share that inspiration and motivation because you never know 
who you're going to impact and who that person might be. The next Howard Schultz. Go out. If you get turned down once or twice or three times, remember, he was 242 times. Man, that's a lot. That's a lot. That's a that's a lot. That's a lot of getting turned down. I'm a, I'm an optimist realist, and I think I maybe could have gone 50. I, yeah, yeah. I that's know. a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll see you next time. Producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.